Welcome back as we continue to discuss reading the Bible for all it's worth. To once again give a big picture overview, um, we're doing our poema approach to interpreting studying the Bible. Um, so the P is preparation. We're preparing ourselves to, to read the text and understand what it's saying to hear from God. Um, we did observation next, where we're looking at um, not just you know what do we what do we assume about the text, but what's actually there, what's it actually saying in each passage. We looked as subsets of that at um, Old Testament genres, New Testament genres, trying to give you ideas of things that you can look for, how those genres work, so that when you're observing, um, you're kind of cluing into some key things. Um, and so all of this then is in preparation. Uh, the preparation, the observation is for this next phase that we're going to focus on now, which is interpretation. Um, and this is this is sort of the heart of it. It's not all of it, right? But it is the heart of it. Once we've observed what's really there, how do we interpret it? How do we take what's presented in scripture and how do we say, well, this is what this means, or, or this is how God is speaking through this passage. Um, it, it really is this necessary step, and it can be the most subjective in ways. It's certainly the most controversial. Um, there's different people who come to different interpretations of key passages. That's every split in church history comes down to that. Every disagreement from church to church comes down to difference of interpretation. Some, sometimes it is like um, a group will say, I don't care what the Bible says. You know, we're going to have we're going to do this or that in our church or in my moral life or whatever. I don't care what the Bible says. Most often it's a difference of interpreting the same passage. Um, you know, we all hear Jesus talking about divorce. We interpret it differently. Uh, we all hear Jesus talking, or uh, Paul talking about women in ministry, um, preaching or not preaching, and, and those kinds of things. And we come to different interpretations of how that fits together. And, and even you can come to a same theological interpretation, and you can come down with a different application. That happens often. So this is the middle step, the interpretive, and this is kind of the meat in the sandwich. Um, from here, we'll go into meditation and application, both super important as well. Um, but this is, gets into um, tying together a lot of the pieces that we've had. Now, when we started, we did talk about some kind of principles of interpretation. We're going to rehash those a little bit today. We're going to walk through um, some of these principles again. The two things we're going to do in this session are talking about the principles of interpretation and then talking about the process of interpretation. So first on the principles, one key principle is we're trying to uh, interpret. We've seen what's there in the passage, and then we're trying to interpret it is authorial intent. Now, authorial intent is the goal, which means what was the intention of the author? When the author wrote that down, what did they mean by it? So it's great for us to hear um, the Apostle Paul talking about um, a concept like headship, like he does in 1 Corinthians 11. Um, it, we can talk. We can look in the Webster's Dictionary of what headship means, right? We can talk about um, what headship might entail in our culture. But in the interpretation phase, what we're most interested in is asking, what did Paul mean when he used a term like headship in 1 Corinthians 11? What did Paul intend? And, and obviously deeper than that, as we've talked about, is what did the Holy Spirit intend through that? So we have to put as secondary, anything that headship might mean in today's culture, we have to set that as secondary to find out what did it mean? What was Paul trying to communicate? Or what was Paul you know, communicating uh, in writing that word down and, and, and putting these concepts together? Now, I'll just say it's really difficult to do this, and this is why we have difference in interpretation. But the idea is, you know, interpreters have said for year, for centuries, um, what we do when we're trying to interpret the Bible is we're trying to think God's thoughts after him, meaning God has a thought in his mind. Um, and then he 
he conveys that thought to the biblical author and, and through the process of inspiration leads that author to write down uh, these truths, these things um, about who God is uh, and, and about how the world works and theology and all these kinds of things. So we're trying to find, think, like think Paul's thoughts after him so that we can think God's thoughts after him. Um, and so the whole process is, um, is uh, you, you might say it's a process of recreation. Like we're trying to recreate the situation or the frame of mind or the intention of the original author. Um, and so the whole thing is like, you know, we're not, we're not just going after theology. We're not just going after uh, application. We're not just going after insight. The goal is we're trying to discover as best we can what the author had in mind when he wrote down what he wrote down. And then we take the theology from there and shape it from there. So um, we really want to be shaped by what God did in Scripture. So authorial intent is what we're trying to get after. What did they mean when they wrote this? Um, and, and a key principle, in addition to authorial intent, that we want to pay attention to is, is what's called the progress of revelation. So revelation is progressive, meaning there's a progress to it. There's an, there's a, an unfolding of it in the sense that God didn't reveal everything that he wanted to reveal at the same time. So sometimes we think of the Bible as just dropping from heaven, fully finished. But really, uh, you know, the first five books of the Bible were written. And then, uh, you know, Samuel was written before Psalms was written. And that was written before the prophets were written. And, and so all these things came a bit at a time to specific people at specific times. And so we want to pay attention as we're interpreting any given uh, part of the Bible. We want to pay attention to where did this belong in uh, the flow of this like revelation that came from God. So if you think of the biblical storyline, uh, there's the creation and fall of the world. Then there's God calling Abraham and eventually making him into the nation of Israel. Um, Jesus comes eventually as an Israelite um, after they, Israel has been exiled and everything else. Um, Jesus gives the spirit to the church uh, and there's this kind of church um, uh, age or, or, you know, reality of the church kind of taking hold. And eventually there's going to be a new creation. So there's this biblical storyline that we could follow. And we want to ask, where does our passage fit within that? Uh, when Paul speaks um, about how the church should function, we need to keep in mind that he's writing in a New Testament sense after Jesus has come and sacrificed. And that makes, means we interpret that differently than we would the prophets who are writing before Jesus came and um, speaking into all those realities. Uh, the other thing you can look at is there's these biblical covenants, covenants, these key moments where God's working with his people, making an agreement, a covenant with his people. Um, and so we see that with Abraham in Genesis 12, uh, again in 15, again in 17. God's making these promises to Abraham to make a great nation out of him. Um, Moses, God meets him on the top of Mount Sinai in Exodus 20 and hands him a covenant uh, and a law that, that goes along with that. Uh, to David, King David in 2 Samuel 7, there's this covenant that God makes with David, there's going to be a ruler on his house forever, a kingdom that's going to be established through David. And there's promises even in the Old Testament of a new covenant that's going to come. Um, we see this in Jeremiah 31. Um, there's hints of it in, in Ezekiel 36. And, um, and Jesus, you know, as he's um, getting ready to lay down his life, he's taking the, the Passover meal, the, the communion dinner with his disciples, references this new covenant that he's making. And so there's a, yet another framework, and we can ask how each of our passages that we're looking at fits within the flow, uh, the progress of revelation within that. And so the the implications of that, you know, it's not like, it's not like it radically changes everything. Um, Words mean what they mean. We want to pay attention to the grammar, the history in every case, but it helps us to identify, you know, um, how it fits within the bigger thing. So um, we have to appreciate the uniqueness of each passage and then how that fits within the whole thing. Um, And so 
you know, a lot of these uh, passages that we're reading and interpreting, just paying attention to, um, you know, when when eating shellfish is forbidden, asking, you know, how does that fit with what Jesus did on the cross? Hebrews has a whole lot to say about the implications of Jesus dying on the cross, which means we still read and care about the earlier passages that came in the Old Testament, but we read and care about them in a, in a different way, in a different context because of what's come later in the story. And so we have to wrestle with and see how all those things fit together. Uh, a third principle for interpreting as we kind of look at how everything fits together is the single meaning of scripture. And this can be a little controversial. There, there's some groups that like to see multiple meanings in a passage. Um, I think there's some nuance to this, but the basic idea is that um, when we're trying to get the authorial intent and, and we're saying scripture is clear uh, in what it teaches, we're saying there's, there's in, in general, there's a single meaning to scripture. So when it when it says something, you know, sometimes in a Bible study setting, we've talked about this, we go around and what does this first mean to you? Well, what does this mean to you? What does this mean to you? And that's fine if we're talking about application, like, man, you know, really what's hitting me in this this week is this aspect of the passage, or, you know, I'm going to apply it in my life this way, and you're going to apply it in your life that way. That's all very legitimate. We're going to get into that when we talk about application. But what a passage means, um, Again, if we're saying what matters the most is what the author intended when he wrote that down, um, then we're, we're kind of looking for a single meaning. Now, of course, there's going to be some shades and some nuance. There's going to be echoes and resonances. There's going to be implications. There's going to be layers. Um, and so we want to be careful with all that. But um, traditionally, we say a passage can have uh, many applications, but one interpretation. Um, so they're, they're in theory, right, there's one thing that Paul meant when he wrote each of the things he did. One thing that Jesus meant when he said what he said. Now, I do think that we find in the big picture that like uh, God is so much bigger um, and intends so much in the things that he says. And so um, a simple statement, take Isaiah 7, 14, uh, the, the virgin will give birth uh, to a son, you'll call his name Emmanuel. Um, I think that definitely had implications for Jesus being born. I think that was a statement of what happens when Jesus is being born. There's also, interestingly, a child potentially born in Isaiah chapter 8 that might have fit some elements of that prophecy. And that's a little bit controversial and interpretive, but I guess all I'm saying is single meaning gets a little bit tricky and we we can um, force it to fit a framework if we're not careful. And so um, I think there's resonances. Uh, that, uh, Richard Bauckham refers to a concept called prophetic excess, where sometimes some of the prophets will speak of an event and it seems really clear, and then you find, oh my goodness, there's so much more um, in that. Uh, we see Acts 2, it's quoting Joel um, about the time when sons and daughters will prophesy and the sun and moon will be darkened, and it sure seems hard to fit everything that that passage in Joel meant into this uh, moment in, in the book of Acts. But he's saying, this is fulfilled right now. This is happening. And, and so we see, okay, boy, that's more than Joel's readers probably would have expected. And also, there seems to be more yet to be fulfilled, um, a prophetic excess that maybe finds its fulfillment at the end of it all when we read the book of Revelation. So a lot of, a lot of uh, tricky, tough things in this, um, but we're trying to get to the authorial intent. We're trying to look for the simple explanation of things. And so um, we want to look for shades and layers and all those kinds of things. Um, but we, we want to say, okay, we're, we're not trying to just say, hey, this could mean 10 things. Um, we're trying to find what that passage means. Um, doesn't remove the concept of mystery. And I think this is important. Paul or Peter says in 2 Peter 3.16 that in Paul's writings, talking about Paul's writings, he says there's things in them that are hard to understand. And I think that's really important, right? Because it's it's one thing like 
we're not going to understand everything about Scripture. And so that some of our interpretive disagreements come from we just don't understand it well enough. Um, but it's also important, like, we don't want to twist what's being said, and Peter warns us against that. Um, yeah, that we don't we don't twist the words that are that are being said. Um, they're they're difficult, and he says you know people do try to twist them to their own destruction. So he's pointing us to be cautious um, about it. And, and I think here's here's the other thing: pursuing a single meaning doesn't mean that we're all going to arrive at the exact same interpretation of a passage. We're trying to pursue the one thing that it means. Um, but we're not all going to get there exactly, and I think that's okay. I think that's uh, it's okay for us to differ in our interpretations as long as we acknowledge the confusion lies with us, not with the text. Um, God knows what he said. He knows what he meant by that. what he, what he said, yeah, even if we're the ones that are confused about it. And I, I think the key is we always need humility in this. 1 Corinthians 4, 6 tells us, warns us not to go beyond what is written. Um, and, and so we, we have to be careful, like, and it it's, goes on to say, like, because we don't want to become puffed up in, in favor of one against another, like uh, humility in what's said back to the observation phase and the interpretations we're making, seeing that, you know, I, I am, I'm in a firm spot when I'm standing on what scripture actually says. I'm in a little shakier spot when I'm interpreting what that's saying. And, um, and so having the humility to be like, we're not going to all see it exactly the same way. Um, we can disagree on the interpretation. I think there is one thing that God means by it, but we are imperfect and limited in how we approach those things. Um, and so I think, you know, when we disagree, it's more about how we disagree. You know, are we dismissive of Scripture or are we honoring Scripture in how we disagree on things? Are we dismissive of a person that's made in God's image or not? Um, a few other related principles uh, here uh, that, that I want to pull out uh, just under this idea of um, the single meaning of Scripture is um, we, we always want to prefer the clear and sensible reading. We've talked about this a little bit already. If you can find a complex way to interpret a passage or you can find one that's more simple and clear and, and feels more straightforward, prefer the simple one. Um, you know, it's, it, it's, it that's, helps us kind of keep things clear. Um, we always want to, the, the analogy of the faith was a principle we mentioned before, where you, you want to let Scripture interpret Scripture. If there's another passage that will shed light on what a passage is meaning, stick to that. We want to see um, how Scripture can keep us understanding the whole scope of Scripture by um, letting it interpret itself. And then if you can find two passages that speak to the same issue, one being more clear and one being less clear, uh, in general, let the more clear passage interpret the less clear one. Um, We talked about that before with Jesus' statement about how, like, um, you know, out of a person's stomach will flow rivers of living water, and, and we could be like, boy, what does that mean? And later, Paul will talk about how the, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And, um, you know, it, it, instead of saying, well, the fruit of the Spirit must be this water that comes out of a person, right? We can say, well, actually, th- maybe this passage about love, joy, peace coming out of our lives as the Spirit enters us helps us interpret the idea of uh, water flowing out of our stomachs when Jesus says the Spirit comes into a person. So all, all these are helpful principles to keep in mind. There's others you, you can look up. Um, uh, you know, commentaries and books on hermeneutics uh, for interpreting the Bible, and you can gain other principles. I think it's important to say, I think these principles are very helpful. Um, they are uh, not necessarily written in Scripture, if that makes sense. Um, and so these are w- within a certain tradition uh, within the Christian world that have been developed over centuries. I think they're very helpful. I think they all um, uh, guide us, but, um, you know, just helping us to kind of think logically, clearly. God gave us brains. He gave us his word. He's the one that chose to reveal his truth to us in written form, using grammar, using syntax, using historical context. And so um, I think we honor the way God revealed himself in scripture 
through principles like these. Um, and, and so just recognizing let's, let's do our best to, to do that um, and use these principles as we go. And, and just trust that, you know, it's, there's an art form to it as well. There's a science to it in, in a sense of, of trying to build the history, history and all that kind of stuff. There's also an art form to it. And throughout the entire thing, we want to be spirit dependent. We want to do it in the context of community, talking to each other about what we're learning uh, and what we're assuming and um, see what God does through that. All right, so that, those are the principles of interpretation. Now I want to talk about the actual process of interpreting. So when I'm going through and I, I try to prepare my heart for what I'm going to study and, um, and, and prepare, like I'm ready to dig into this, then we do the observation stage and we try to just look at what is there. When it comes time to actually interpret, what's the process look like? And I've got a few things here. The first is you want to first build the background. When you're ready to interpret a passage, you've made your observations, what do you do? You try to build the background of the passage. So what is happening at the moment in history in which the author wrote what they wrote? So using the example of Genesis 12, it's a great example um, to dig into here. Um, this is the Lord calling Abram. And, and so there's no there's no uh, people of God in a sense, right? There's Adam and Eve and they have children. And so everyone's God's people in a sense, but God calls Abram away from his people um, into come follow me and I'm going to make you into this great nation. That's kind of what's happening in the beginning of Genesis 12. So if you ask what's happening in this moment of history, there, there's not a nation of Israel yet. Um, obviously, there's no Jesus yet. Um, there's no clear um, establishment of like a lot of the, the systems and structures that come later. There's no law of God yet um, in, in Genesis 12 in the same way that there will be once we get to Exodus 20. And so we, we keep all those things in mind. What's the background of this entire thing? Uh, how's God working? What's he doing? It's coming on the heels of... Uh, the Tower of Babel, and that's significant. And so we, we just kind of ask, okay, what's the background? What's behind this whole thing? Uh, we can ask the question, what's the author going through? How's the author been explaining what's coming? And in a narrative passage like Genesis, we've been talking about um, genre. And so in a narrative passage, we want to ask storyline what's happening. In a uh, in an epistle, one of the New Testament letters, you, you might ask, what's the argument that the author has been building prior to coming to this passage? We can ask what the audience has been experiencing. And so you can ask in Genesis, who is Genesis written to? It was all written to this generation of Israelites that um, have been led out of slavery in Egypt. They've been led through the wilderness. They've been led into the promised land. And these people now are about to inherit the promised land. And so God's telling these stories uh, through Moses in, in um, you know Genesis 1 through 12 so far. Um, about who they are as a people because of who God is as a nation. These are their national origins. And so uh, paying attention to what the original readers of the, the book of the Bible that we're looking at would have been experiencing is really helpful in this. We can ask questions like, what's the relationship between author and audience? Okay, and so we see Moses is getting ready to send the Israelites into the promised land. If we ask it about the Apostle Paul, um, most of his letters were written to churches he himself had been pastoring. Um, some of them are written to, like Romans, someone, uh, a church that he's never visited before. And so asking what that relationship between the author and the audience is can help us gain some insight into what's happening with the passage. We can ask questions like, what cultural factors seem to affect the passage that we're reading? And, and it's, it's not always easy to figure out what's the culture that's happening at the time. Um, but, but it is helpful to ask it and through time and more study, we begin to become more intuitive and pick up more and more about, um, what culture was like at the time and how that might apply to some of these things. Um, and so all these things help us check 
other steps in, in what comes. So first of all, building the background. What's even going on behind the scenes before we even arrive at this passage? Then the second thing we want to do is set the context. So in setting the context, we're saying, okay, what is what is the context of this passage? So um, what's surrounding it? What's the author already said? What's the author going to go on to say afterwards? Um, and th- this is... Um, you know, you can do a whole lot of work in this. Um, sometimes you don't always have time to do as much about like, boy, everything that's come before, everything that's come after. But that context really matters. How it's situated in the book of, of the whole. Um, you can see with Genesis 12, it's a it's a pivot point in the book of Genesis. Um, there's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of destruction. There's a lot of downward spiraling in uh, Genesis basically 3 through 11. And here we get this ordering that God does, calling a person, making a nation out of him and... Uh, Abram stays a key character through chapter 25 and, and obviously then his descendants after that. So surround what's surrounding it, how is that going to affect um, what's going on? And, and so then asking then how does this passage relate to that? So are there conjunctions, the beginning of the passage or the beginning of the following passage that show us like, is this contrasting what's happened? Is it connecting? You know, are they using words like but? Are they using words like and? Is it a culmination or, or a implication? Are they using words like therefore or for this reason or things like that? Um, and so asking those questions, and again, some of that's more in the letter uh, genre, letter writing epistle genre, but even in narrative, you can see those kinds of things. So we're going to build the background, what's happening in the world at this time. We're going to build, set the context um, and see what's, what's before and after the passage. Third thing we're going to do as we sit down and interpret is we want to work with a paragraph. Now, working with a paragraph is perfect for uh, the letters. It's great for a lot of the prophetic books. It's um, It gets a little different when you get into some different genres. And so um, when you get into some of the narrative stuff, both in the Old Testament and in the Gospels and Acts, maybe a paragraph isn't quite the right unit. You might work with a story, for example, or something. But the whole point is you're trying to like limit yourself to a chunk of it that is bigger than just a word or a phrase, but smaller than like the entire letter or uh, narrative scope. And so you're going to take a chunk. Paragraph is a great starting point. When you work with that paragraph, what you want to do is you want to establish the content within that paragraph. Okay, so you're going to ask key questions. What's the content of this? This is kind of getting into the observation phase, the fruit of the observation. Who, uh, what, why, when, where, how? Like those are the right questions to be asked. So who's writing it? Who are they writing it to? What's being said? What's being referred to? Um, Why? Like is there any basis for what's being said? Does the author appeal to any grounding truth, any circumstance, any like relationship that would explain the why behind what's being said? We can ask when, right? When was this being written? What what events are being referred to or when are these events taking place? Um, is, is he speaking of something past, present, or future when they're writing? Where is this set? Um, you know, does it include like uh, some kind of sending out or like a, a reference point to some other location? Um, uh, th- there's like a where that's historical. There's a where that like, uh, does that have any bearing on how we respond to it? Um, some of the prophecies made to Egypt and Babylon and some of the prophetic books um, probably relate to us different than the passages that are written to Israel. And and those passages certainly have a different way of relating to us than the passages that speak to New Testament Christians. And so asking those where's can be helpful as well. How? How is the action accomplished? How is the teaching to be received? Um, those kinds of questions are 
um, key to kind of set the content, like establish what's the content of this thing. Um, and, and again, back to this is like stick with the text. Okay. So we're, we're not, we're not going into reformed theology or Arminian theology or, uh, Pentecostal theology. We're, we're trying to stick to the text. What's being said here back sticking with this observation phase, the fruit of our observation. Like this is why it's so important to do observation before interpretation, because we're getting the background we're setting the, the context, and, that, and now here we're just like working with this paragraph. What is actually being said? Second thing to do in, in, after we've kind of established the content, what's it actually saying? We want to approach the passage imaginatively. And this isn't always uh, brought out in, in talking about how to interpret the Bible, but the imagination is so key in so many passages in Scripture. I want to give you a quote here from Howard Hendricks. He says, One of the things I'd love to see more people do when they study the Bible is to pray a simple prayer. Lord, clothe the facts with fascination. Help me crawl into the skin of these people, to see through their eyes, to feel with their fingers, to understand with their hearts, and to know with their minds. Then the word of God will become alive. I love that because interpreting a passage is uh, more than just um, a dead scientific thing, right? It's like, man, how do I experience this? Like when Abraham's being called, what would he like for Abraham to be called? Um, when, when Moses is writing about Abraham being called, what would it be like for Moses to write about that? And so trying to put ourselves using our five senses, when you hear words being spoken, try to, try to engage your sense of hearing in what that would sound like. Um, it, when you see something being described, think, what would it be like to see this? So your imagination is hugely important. Another, another thing along these lines is you can use actually multiple translations of the Bible to kind of open yourself up to some, some other uh, possibilities here. Um, I think that's actually part of kind of using your imagination is you're kind of stretching so you can read a passage in one way. So I'm, I think of like 2 Corinthians 3.18 in the ESV, which I, is my translation of choice. It says, we all with an unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord. We're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Now in there, I, I, I read things like uh, unveiled face, like what's that getting at? Beholding the glory of the Lord with a face that's unveiled. We're being transformed uh, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Like what does that mean? That's kind of a tricky thing to get your head around. Um, and so you might um, you might look in the NIV. The NIV says, we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. So the ESV had said beholding. Now this is saying contemplate it. Um, that seems to imply to me a little more of a cognitive process maybe than a uh, visual process. And so that's suggesting some other possibilities to me. And I don't know which one's right yet, but it's giving me some different um, different uh, uh, imaginative possibilities. The NIV, NIV keeps saying, we're being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. Um, and so, you know, uh, ESV had said from one degree of glory to another, this is saying ever increasing glory. So it helps me kind of fill it out maybe, or at least ask some questions. Um, the NASB says we all with unveiled faces beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. Um, that's an interesting addition to it as well, right? Uh, that mirror thing is new. So uh, are we looking into a mirror or not? Where does that come from? That's an interpretive question I have. Um, the NLT, all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. Now, this is important because you can see uh, translations like the NLT, 
um, things like the message. Um, there's the CEB, the, the Common English Bible. And they'll all do some of the interpretive work for you. That helps it read smoother in English. Um, and it's it's a great tool to have. Um, sometimes you, you, in doing this interpretive stage, find some of these translations have done some of the interpretive work, taken some liberties in doing that. Doesn't mean that they're bad for having done that. But checking multiple translations can help you see where they've sort of made a leap or made a decision in how they've rendered it in itself. And so multiple translations helps you get, um, it doesn't settle it for you necessarily. It's not just about picking which one you like the best, but it's saying, okay, interesting. So maybe there's a mirror involved, some kind of mirror concept. Um, maybe I'm looking, uh, beholding, maybe I'm thinking here, right? Um, maybe I'm getting more and more glorious or, you know, what, what is that all about? And so it suggests these different possibilities. So you don't have to decide which one's right. You're just trying to get the the right questions down and, and get some possible uh, translations involved in there. Uh, another helpful thing in terms of using your imagination when coming to the passage is to write your own paraphrase of it. So this is putting the passage in your own words. And so as you've studied it and you're kind of seeing what's really there, how would you say this? If you were saying it now to somebody, how would you put it? And that, and that kind of helps you find those areas where maybe you are a little fuzzier than you think. And so writing it out, maybe try writing it a couple of different ways. Um, put a question mark by the parts where you're like, I'm really not sure if this is what it's saying or not. Um, those kinds of things have a great uh, ability to sort of prompt this. And I think doing it at the beginning of the process and again at the end can be really helpful. You can kind of see how your understanding of the passage has grown. If you have a hard time paraphrasing the passage, um, putting it in your own words, you really don't understand it yet. And so that's a great indicator of how well you're doing in your interpretation. A third step here um, under this uh, more general heading of um, working within the paragraph is to analyze key words and phrases. Okay, so you're trying to find what those things mean. So when we take a word like glory in the passage from St. Corinthians we were just looking at, or a passage like image, um, or a passage like a veil, like an unveiled face, like what are those key words and phrases and try to figure out what they mean. So you can look up a Bible dictionary. You can even do a Google search. You can use a concordance. You can find other passages in scripture where that term is used and find, well, okay, how is that word being used there? Maybe sometimes there's a clearer passage that will help interpret a less clear one. And so you can dive into all those kinds of things and get a sense for what's really going on. Um, it, you can get a range for the whole thing. So there's lexicons, Bible dictionaries, commentaries that will all go into describing um, what's happening in a um, in a specific place in Scripture, how that word or phrase is used in general. And then the step in interpretation is deciding what does it mean here. You know, so you can find the word means several things in several places, or it has a range of meaning. But it, but it only means one of those things um, in the passage. There could be a little play on words. That's possible. But typically it means um, one thing in a spot. And so um, and so trying to you know drill into, okay, what are these key phrases that I need to nail down to figure out, okay, how am I taking those? Like, what, are, what do I think that means here? And, and again, obviously doing this very prayerfully and everything. But so that's how we work within the paragraph. All right. So we've built the background set the context. We've worked with a paragraph. Now we're going to try to find the flow of thought. Um, so the interpretation of our passage is going to take, like should take into consideration the flow of thought that is surrounding it, the flow of thought within it. And so we're trying to see um, not just what's being said, but like, how does that fit? And this is back to context, but we're really trying to trace like an argument or a plot line um, really through the whole thing. So 
what's the passage getting at? What's the main point? What smaller points are contributing to larger points? Um, you might even like diagram this out and just kind of say, okay, here's the big thought and here's the ones that modify that or bring more clarity to it or explain some part within it. Um, we really don't understand a passage of scripture until we identify the flow of the whole thing and, and trace that flow throughout it. If you looked into like Hebrews 6, for example, there's this whole um, concept uh, where Jesus is, is explained. He's the high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And, um, and so chapters like 7, 8, 9, 10 go into this idea of like Melchizedek and priesthood and how Jesus fits within that. And so it's really hard to take one statement like Jesus is a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And you're like, what in the world does that mean? Well, the flow of the argument actually helps to unpack it. And we got Hebrews is a really tightly reasoned bit of logic uh, in the New Testament. And so following that closely with an eye to how it develops um, is, is really important to do. Tricky, tricky, but important. Finally, the last thing after we've worked with the paragraph, found the flow of thought, um, we want to consult other sources. And this is actually a really important step um, that, you know, really the, the laziest way to interpret a passage is to open a book or a commentary and say, okay, what does this mean? Um, because the, the, they will tell you. I mean, these, these are people that have done so much work on these passages, and so I'll tell you, this is what it means. But what you're going to find is that commentators di- disagree with each other. Um, church traditions disagree with each other on what these passages mean. So it can be kind of lazy to just start with someone else's interpretation. And okay, I guess that's what that means. We want to, the, the whole reason we're doing this course, right, is to say we want to learn how to do this for ourselves. I want to dig into the process of interpretation and learn what it means. Like, how am I going to, how am I going to put this together? How am I going to see what it actually is getting at? Um, so, uh, we're doing that for ourselves, but an important stage and, and is to look at what are other people saying about it? What are these wise, um, thoughtful, diligent, skilled, educated people doing when they wrestle with this passage? And, and you might find like some ways this is like a dummy check, you know, you're, you've kind of got, oh my goodness, this means that. And you read, and if you read five commentaries on it and none of the five say anything about this interpretation you come up with, you should definitely seriously question your unique interpretation of that. It's very unlikely that any one of us is going to be like finding the new thing that no commentator has ever thought before. Um, Very unlikely. Now, that happens. There's moments like, think of the Reformation with Martin Luther, where he um, was in this, you know, centuries-long tradition of interpreting the Bible in a certain way that that bent towards works righteousness that were saved by doing good and obeying. And Martin Luther read that stuff and he he saw in Romans this indication of God giving us his righteousness in a way that we don't earn. Um, and, and saw something that has always been there, but that was really underemphasized or ignored or clearly contradicted in the theological writings that he was swimming in at the time. So I don't want to say you'll never find an interpretation that's um, at odds with the other commentators you're reading. Um, All I'm saying is we should tread very lightly, and Martin Luther did tread very lightly in this. Um, His 95 theses he nailed to the Wittenberg door was not saying, um, church, you're wrong, and um, change it now or else. He was actually giving an invitation to talk about these things. These were key questions that he had, and he wanted to engage in a dialogue with the Catholic theologians. He, he wasn't trying to start a new church. He, he, he was a Catholic uh, and, and wanted to stay that, wanted to bring some reform to the church, ask questions, start a dialogue. And, and so he was very gracious. I mean, Martin Luther could be kind of um, 
a donkey of a man, as Ishmael is described in uh, in Genesis. But uh, he could be stubborn and hard too. But uh, really, he tread lightly in challenging this main interpretation. I, I think that's a decent model for us of saying, um, maybe I'll find something new, but find, consulting other commentaries will help us see, oh, I, I was reading that phrase wrong. Okay, I didn't consider this bit of context to it. And so we always do want to check our sources, find other people that are saying some things, weigh their arguments about it. But I, I really think it's important. We want to do that after we've done the work of wrestling with the text, seeing what's actually there and what's not. Otherwise, we can kind of get into just the flow of what other people have thought, and we're kind of missing the opportunity to interpret it for ourselves. Um, that's an important responsibility um, that we have. So, um, you know, all these things, like we want to consult other passages, certainly. So if you can use a concordance. You can do a, a word search on Bible Gateway or something like that. Find other passages that are sharing similar thoughts. Um, check to make sure your interpretation certainly doesn't uh, violate or contradict other parts of Scripture. That's certainly important. Um, but then, um, but then, yeah, uh, pastors, friends, uh, commentaries, gaining insights from people that have spent time looking into these things and, um, and then weigh what they're saying based on now what we know, what the text says. So that is the interpretive process more or less. Okay. And, and really, I, I think what you can see in this is all I'm doing is just suggesting, pay attention to these key elements. Um, the key for it is trying to, um, really just honor what's there, honor the grammar, the history, um, honor the argument and the flow, honor the background and the context, pay attention to what's there and what's not there, um, look for what's being emphasized, and all of that together is going to go from from the observation stage into, okay, I'm starting to see how this fits together, and I can now paraphrase what I think he's getting at here. That really our preaching, Bible study, writing ministry should be kind of a matter of paraphrasing scripture and then learning to tag and apply those things into the, the world that we live in today, which is in many ways the exact same as the world that any of these um, New Testament and Old Testament books were written into. But there's also a uniqueness um, in, in the whole thing uh, where we're we're saying there's some unique things about our, our day and our culture and the, the very sp- spot where I'm living and, and um, the people that I'm speaking to and me, myself, my own heart. So um, all these things, we're trying to just wrestle with all, all the implications. What is he really saying? How can I paraphrase that? And then from there, we talk more about, man, how do I speak that truth into my own heart and life and to the lives of the people that are around me? So that's what comes up next in our meditation and application uh, phases is how do we take the interpretive decisions that we've made, wrestled with, held before the Lord, prayed about, and how do we begin to let those sink in through meditation? And then how do we... Uh, put those things into practice uh, through application. And that's what's coming next.